Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Fabrication Friday podcast. I'm your host, Joe Fairley, certified prosthetist, 3D printing enthusiast, and owner of Ascent Fabrication. Fabrication Friday is an all-around fun time where I talk about 3D printing applications, conduct interviews with industry leaders, and much more. Come join us every Friday for an informational discussion around the evolution of the additive manufacturing field and how we utilize various digital workflows and 3D printing methods in our daily work at Ascent Fabrication. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fabrication Friday podcast. I'm your host, Joe Fairley, uh, owner of Ascent Fabrication, 3D printing enthusiast. Thanks again for tuning in to Fabrication Friday this week. Um, getting into the print of the week this week, we have a Van Ness uh, rotation plasty uh, prosthesis here. Uh, a couple different parts to this prosthesis. Um, we have a flexible inner component, and then there's a rigid frame. Um, this is actually a project we're working on with a group out of Melbourne, Australia, uh, working with ProMotion Prosthetics and uh, Monique Vandeboom out there. Uh, so really cool opportunity to really show the power of the digital workflow and really, you know, go across uh, country borders to you know, halfway around the world uh, to provide a different level of prosthetic care for patients. Um, if you don't know what a Van Ness rotation plasty is, uh, it's quite an interesting uh, amputation process, actually, if you uh, don't mind, you know, maybe looking at a little, uh, some different configurations of body parts. Um, basically, what happens when someone maybe has a, um, some type of bone cancer within around their knee joint, uh, particularly in uh, younger, uh, younger kids, uh, middle-aged kids, and what happens is they amputate just above the knee and then just below the knee. Um, and then when their foot is still intact, they actually turn the foot uh, in the opposite direction. And then your ankle joint becomes your knee joint. Uh, it's actually a pretty successful process that um, allows a lot of people um, a little bit more mobility with a more natural uh, human joint for, for the knee for flexion and extension rather than having a prosthetic knee joint. So in, in some ways that can be um, a very useful um, amputation process. And for this uh, prosthesis here, we have a, um, a foot section that is specific to around this person's foot. It's um, out of the VarioShore material from ColorFab. Uh, this foaming TPU is really, really nice to use because it's lightweight. Um, the skin tones actually have an additive of silver in them. Um, so having an antibacterial um, component to the prosthesis is a pretty nice addition as well. Um, so the foot section here printed on the artillery sidewinder uh, in about 12 hours and 36 minutes um, and weighed about 140 grams. And we used a 0.6 nozzle. Uh, for this. So there was a little bit of support material removal after that print. And then we also printed the frame for it. So what Monique is going to do there in Australia, once these are all shipped to her, um, she's going to actually fill the frame with plaster and then end up laminating around that plaster mold to have a carbon fiber laminated socket for the outer frame for this flexible inner socket. So 
Same kind of deal with the thigh. Um, there is a thigh section here that was printed um, with a 0.9 millimeter nozzle on the Filament Innovations uh, Kratos machine. That was printed in about seven hours and 45 minutes, weighed about 202 grams. And then the frame um, out of PETG again in an hour and 38 minutes and 370 grams. Um, should have mentioned too that foot frame was an hour and 23 minutes. So doing vase mode printing and with a 2.5 millimeter nozzle for those frames, very, very quick results for the high flow filament innovations machines. So that is our uh, prints of the week, you know, really looking forward to seeing how that's going to come, come about with the patient and see what she thinks of it. Um, and now getting into our Fabrication Friday podcast today. Hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us for the Fabrication Friday podcast. I'm your host, Joe Fairley, a 3D printing enthusiast and owner of Ascent Fabrication. Um, and with me today, we have an awesome special guest uh, who is probably more of a 3D printing enthusiast than I am even. Uh, so Mr. Zach Burhop, um, I've been following him for quite some time on uh, LinkedIn primarily, just found his Instagram as well. Uh, you're printing some really cool things, man. I just wanted to kind of get, um, you know, a little bit of background on, you know, how you got interested in the 3D printing industry in general, um, and maybe about a couple of the positions that you've worked in the industry. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, thanks for checking out all my posts. Like it's, uh, it's, it's nice to see people looking at it. You know, a lot of, a lot of work and thought kind of goes into that. Um, so it's nice to hear that it's not you know, just going into the black hole. Um, <laughs> I've had kind of an interesting um, entry into 3D printing. I, I've been in the industry for about 10 years. Uh, I think I was one of the last generations to to grow up and, and go all the way through college without uh, really having a lot of access to 3D printing. Um, so a lot of my early background was, you know, trying to build a lathe in the garage, you know, almost, you know, throwing a tool through my dad's car window you know, sure. that kind of thing, trying to get access to CNC machines or mills and things. Um, and it was really great, um, kind of early, like when I graduated in like 2011, uh, that was right when MakerBot was really huge. A company called Solidoodle out of Brooklyn uh, released the first printer that was under $1,500. Um, so I, I had kind of been aware of the technology, but but it was it was a really cool idea to be able to to make parts for the first time without having to do all of the subtractive manufacturing. Uh, so I took all my graduation money from college and I, and I bought um, like a solid doodle two machine. So first machine is about $1,500. Uh, it, it looked like, you know, something somebody built, you know, on their own. And it was, it was, a, it's just crazy monster Rube Goldberg kind of machine. Okay. Uh, and, and I remember setting it up and then sending my first, um, my first print to it that I, that I designed. And it was like one of those magical moments out of like a movie or something where like this moment is like going to affect, you know, what you want to work on for the rest of your career. And that was very much that for me. Um, so I, I basically took this printer and, uh, and I just started printing and in, it's, it's been kind of uh, all additive all the time, you know, after that. Yeah. Very cool. So solid doodle. I haven't heard of that company yet. Um, so what did that yeah. look like? So it was, uh, it was a, just a solid metal riveted frame. Okay. Um, basically the, there was a guy named Sam Cervantes who, uh, briefly was, uh, uh, on the MakerBot team, uh, before they were acquired by Stratasys. Okay. 
Okay. And uh, he he left there and he started this kind of Brooklyn startup called Solidoodle. And they were, it was basically a race to the bottom. So you had the, the around $3,000 MakerBot and they were trying to really undercut their price. Um, so he had this kind of cool sheet metal frame that you could stand on that was kind of all riveted together. Okay. Um, it was back, back before E3D. So you had yeah. uh, this, this crazy hot end that was like, coated in epoxy and then wrapped in Kapton tape. And it was, yep. it was just this kind of crazy machine. Uh, but it, but it printed, it had a, it had a six inch by six inch bed. Okay. Which, okay. which is crazy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For back then. Yeah. yeah. That was definitely uh, a big, pretty big build volume back then. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I recently saw one of your um, recent posts about one of your other, um, you know, early on printers. Was it, something from Ultimaker, one of the wooden ones? Yeah, so I, I, I kind of cheated. That's a, that's a MakerBot thingomatic. Okay. Uh, that, that was the printer that I always wanted. But but honestly, like at the time, we just graduated from school, it was too expensive. Okay. So I, I always wanted that machine. And that that's like the machine that really got me thinking about 3D printing and like really excited about the industry. Um, so a couple years ago, I you know, I always am on eBay for like weird 3D printing stuff. Right. And I saw this like pristine uh, MakerBot thingamatic. It was like one of the very few models that was assembled um, on site in like the early days of MakerBot. Yeah, uh, and it had the uh, an automatic build platform. So, so like you would see now, like the conveyor belt style platforms that can produce. It, yeah. it actually was doing that way back in 2010, 2011. Okay. So I was able to I was able to find one of those and I bought it. So I, I pull it out every now and then. It's just this great you know great piece in my uh, in my studio. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. How many printers do you have currently? Um, are we counting working or non-working? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go non-working. I probably have a couple in the graveyard here too. Yeah, I I probably have close to twelve if we're counting capable of printing at some okay. point. It's um i i you know lately i've like really focused on the bamboo i i think like the bamboo lab printer is an, an amazing machine yeah um but i but i also recently added a uh, an entamsis fun mat um to be able to to continue to do like a lot of really high temp printing ultim and peak and right and those are like engineering materials right. um i always keep an ender three um uh, because i i love the ability to to modify that printer to be whatever I want it to be, which is really cool. I've got one out there printing chocolate right now. Um, I've got another one that's that's about to be modified for the uh, for the Revo nozzle high flow system. Nice. nice, awesome. Yeah, chocolate printing is pretty fun. Um, I recently uh, I've been watching Cocoa Press quite a bit and seeing what they're doing. Um, they're they're now actually coming out with a. Um, a, a starter kit, you know, builds uh, part of the printer. Um, I think for, I think the, it was like 1500 or something around that. And then there's going to be like a second launch of, uh, you know, fully assembled printer um, for a little bit more, but that'll be my first chocolate printer. Do you have any tips on chocolate printing when I get that? <laughs> are they, are they, do they have active cooling yet? I've seen that machine a little bit. I don't think so. Um, so I think it's just a, um, a chocolate that will cool at room temp um, and print it cold enough that you don't need any extra cooling. Cause I don't think there were any cooling fans on that. Although, you know, obviously you could attach one 
and maybe yeah. different chocolate with it, but you know, they're trying to make it like as plug and play simple as possible. Yeah. So it sounds like they've done like a little bit of process work with the, with the actual chocolate itself too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, most, most of the chocolate printing that I've been doing um, ha, has been uh, off the shelf, uh, like high end baker chocolate. Okay. Um, okay. And, and there's, there's been a, a huge amount of like process as far as like tempering the chocolate. You need to get it to like a, a certain temp and cool it pretty quickly. And there's okay. a lot of neat process things, but, but cooling has been big for me. I, I find that I can't, like, I don't, I have a fan, but like, you almost need like a chiller or something right. to like blow air. Right. Um, I've got it to work best in the winter. And uh, <laughs> yeah. essentially I'll take my air conditioner and I'll just shut the air conditioner off for a few hours and I'll bring the, the temperature of the house like really low. Yeah. And then, and then, then print. But that's, that's been the biggest struggle with, with chocolate so far is, is just okay. is that. It's like almost like fans aren't quite enough. You need yeah. some like chamber or some kind of like chilling system. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think they, so Cocoa Press had one version earlier of their printer, which was in a, it was a more industrial looking machine. Um, mm -hmm. That was like something you would definitely see in a chocolate shop um, where it, it looked like a refrigerator, you know, open the door, glass door, and there was the printer inside basically. Um, Cause I think they had that, you know, same thought that, you know, having that just forced air wasn't quite enough. And then, you know, needing that chilling for the different uh, viscosities of different chocolate, you know, to cool quickly enough. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, it's, it's an exciting, exciting area. Like I, I remember going to CES, um, you know, maybe 2015 or so in, in Vegas yeah. and 3D systems would have their, their candy printers out. Yeah. And you know, I always thought that was so cool because they were, they were doing like, like lattices and like, you know, like a tiny gumball that had this like complex geometry and it was kind of like a sour, sour flavor. I always thought that was like the coolest thing. Like I, I would love to, to get into that sometime. Yeah. They're just, you know, melting down that sugar, you know, in a certain way, right. And cooling it again. I mean, is it yeah. any, any different from filament or chocolate printing like that? I don't know. I don't think it was an FDM based process. I, I okay. think it, it was, uh, it, it was more, I, I think similar like a powder bed kind powder of scenario. Bed. Wow. Because it was like a, like a granulated powder that they had that yeah. they were solidifying. Okay. So like that, that was allowed them to do like really, really fine details on like really small things. Oh, that's so like, cool. you, like you like you take a gumball and then you apply like a lattice to it. And, and it's, yeah. it's this beautiful piece of art. You know, it's, it's that incredible. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I wonder how much that one gumball costs to print. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't even want to ask. Like, you know, it's one of those, like, if, if you have to ask, you can't afford it kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. They're doing it for the wow factor and to show what's possible, right? But yeah. other than that, it's just a, a cool looking, uh, cool looking gumball. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Yeah. And, and, and so the chocolate stuff is really interesting because it's, you know, it's a more economical way of getting into like the food printing. Kind sure, of thing. sure. So, I mean, food printing, they're now starting to print some meat, uh, whether it's meat or, you know, non-meat, vegetable-based meat. Um, you know, is, how would you think that's uh, that's gone about with the, the actual materials they're using and then trying to solidify something like that? I mean, do they even really need to solidify it because you're then cooking it afterward, right? Yeah, you know, so, sometimes I think projects go too far with additive. <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, it, it, it's like, it's a useful technology, but it, but it's definitely like a tool in the toolbox. Right. right. When it comes to something like meat, you like, you hit it exactly on the head. Like if you're, yeah. if you're going to cook it, like, does it really matter at that point that it's 3d printed versus molded right. or, you know? Yeah. I mean, what, what, what kind of advantage are we getting by 3d printing it versus, uh, you know, just getting it otherwise? I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, at a certain point too, like, you know, 3d printing is still like a pretty big, like marketing, you know, ploy too. So it's, it's very yeah. easy to say, hey, we 3d printed it, check out our company, you know? Right. Just a, uh, just a wow factor, right? Yeah. 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 What's the, what's the most fun thing that you have printed? What's your favorite piece? If you could pick one, maybe two, it might be kind of hard, but. Yeah, that's like a really, that's actually a really difficult question. I, uh, I, I, I did one recently that um, back, back before the Stratus acquisition of MakerBot, they were, they were generating a lot of really cool models. Um, they were kind of exploring what it would be like to sell like models as a company to, that you could build. So one of the ones they did was this dinosaur. And I'm sure you've seen it on like Thingiverse over the years. It's a T-Rex, yep. but people have done like, all this remixing. I, I saw the other day, like they made the, the dinosaur skull into like a shower head that would oh spray God. water. It was just, <laughs> it's crazy. That's nuts. But, but originally it started off as a full T-Rex skeleton and they, they actually employed a, uh, a sculptor to kind of come through and make it in such a way that you could 3D print it. Okay. Um, so I've always wanted to do it. And you know, you know, recently, uh, like, uh, Ascentium, uh, the, the local company in Austin, yeah. um, started making all this other company called, called 3d fuels filament in house. Um, so it's right down the road for me. So yeah. I, I was really, really excited about the idea that, that my filament is coming from, you know, 20 minutes down the road. Right. Uh, I, I grabbed a whole bunch of it, um, that was made, made locally. And, uh, I printed a, uh, a, like a really big, t-rex dinosaur and I, I think i posted about it too uh, but basically i scaled the the skull so it'd be the absolute biggest build uh build volume of the the bamboo labs 3d printer that's awesome and then i and then i kind of let all the other parts kind of follow behind and scale yeah so a lot of them a lot of them ended up being a little too tall and i had to like do some kind of clever like mesh work and stuff to try to like get them all in the bed but I ended up with this like seven foot long T-Rex skeleton. It's like three, three or four feet high. That and awesome. that was cool. That's awesome. Is that now like a, a corner piece in your house? Just like as soon as you walk in, this is greeting you. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got I've got it hanging. Like that was that was a funny realization. Like I, I printed awesome. this thing over like three weeks. And then all of a sudden you've got this giant dinosaur and you're like, what the heck am I gonna do with this? <laughs> what do I do with this? Yeah, is it going on? Like, where do I put it? <laughs> So my, my design studio, I ended up putting a couple hooks in the ceiling and like suspending it just because like I had no floor space for a seven foot long dinosaur. <laughs> That's awesome. But, you know, maybe there could be someone's looking for, you know, printed dinosaur bones somewhere, maybe for, you know, an art museum or something like that. Um, yeah. I love finding like those practical uses for 3D printing, um, as I, you know, can definitely tell you do as well. Um, you know, so for that case, you know, you definitely have, uh, maybe a little bit of a market there for 3d printing some, you know, dinosaur replicas. Yeah, that would be really cool. I, I always think like, um, I, I'm really interested too, in like a lot of the bone trainers and things for surgeons and things. Yeah. They have a lot of cool, like, uh, materials that are kind of like bone simulants that you can right. still have to imprint. 
So right. I always thought that would be a cool thing too to to kind of play with that. But for sure. Yeah, I know there is actually one company. Um, I forget if it was FDM based or or another uh, process, but they are making a material that is as close to, to similar as bone. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's definitely, you know, when we talk about materials, um, you know, when we want them to be looking and feeling the same way as something we would want to work on, um, you know, I'm seeing a lot more companies pop up that have like these more, you know, very fine tuned and niche, you know, spaces, even within the 3D printing industry, right? Um, mm-hmm. it's just like one niche group after another that just kind of blows up in its own way. Um, you know, like concrete 3D printing and and all the different, um, you know, structures that they're building with that homes and other structures, uh, trying to 3D print uh, bridges in Amsterdam and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, that, that metallic bridge in Amsterdam is beautiful. I, I'd love to go walk across that someday. Oh yeah. I, I was there just a couple of years too early. Um, I got oh, to uh, Ultimaker's headquarters back in 2016, I think it was, uh-huh. uh, when uh, I was doing some work with them on a um, kind of a mission-based trip to Haiti actually, and for prosthetics. But uh, we were, we got the chance to go and, and tour their facilities and then learn all about the, their Ultimaker printers um, but I was just a couple years too early for the uh, 3D printed bridge. So I'll have to go back to Amsterdam sometime and check that out. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so you've worked with uh, a couple different companies in the additive space, right? Could you kind of take us through, um, you know, were you were you seeking out those additive manufacturing uh, industry career paths or did that just kind of um, come on to you? Yeah, so so talking about you know way back in 2012, I I, I get my first printer. Um, I, I'm still doing engineering work, so I, I at the time I was working for uh, for a production company doing TV for Nat Geo, um, but I basically was going home at night and then just doing as much basically application and process work as I possibly could with my with my 3D printer, and I, I knew that's where I wanted to go. Um, so I was pretty lucky. In 2013, I uh, I started working for a company uh, in Las Vegas. So I was in Atlanta at the time, and I moved all the way out to Las Vegas um, to work for a hotel billionaire who uh, who made his money in real estate, hotels, things like that, and was always very interested in space. So in '99, he licensed a bunch of technology from NASA um, for inflatable space stations, and he started this company. Um, so I joined up in 2013 and shortly thereafter, I, uh, I started, I took over all additive manufacturing on site. So we, we had Stratasys machines, we had tons of MakerBot, consumer level machines. Uh, we were essentially like an R&D team that was envisioning what it would look like to work in deep space or kind of in, in areas of space where it was really difficult to, to bring supplies to and supply missions. Um, so we did lots of mock-ups, lots of prototypes related to like life support systems. And, and that was all being run through the, the additive section. So I was there for about eight years. And one of the really cool things that we started really paying attention to was the, the ability to 3D print in space. Um, so I did, I did a bunch of work with uh, a program called NASA Next Step, where they were, they were essentially looking at, okay, if we send a deep space mission out or we send a mission to the moon, what would that environment look like? 
Um, so one of the projects there that I spearheaded was the, the manufacturing center and kind of looking at, you know, what it would take to, to build things in space, what types of parts on our inflatable spacecraft um, could potentially be printed by the astronauts, you know, what kind of tools would they print, you know, form factor would the machine be in. Um, so I was there for about eight years and that was a lot of like really, really cool additive projects. Um, but it was always really interesting to me that like my, my ability to work on that all very much stemmed from, you know, that $1,500 printer, you know, in 2012. Well, that was a lot more, um, you know, experience than a lot of people had back in 2012, 2013 as well. Right. I mean, people were still figuring out from a stratasis level down to consumer, how to even use those consumer printers. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If those were simply for prototyping stage versus a stratasis printer that would be used for production status. Right. Um, so that's pretty neat to hear. I mean, printing in space, what kind of things came up? Right. Obviously, no gravity. So you're um, you're kind of forced to, uh, you know, print inside of something else like uh, a, a container of some sort. Or how would you go about that? Yeah, so it ends up not the the zero gravity thing ends up not being is especially with FDM, which was which was my major focus. Not yeah. not as big of a problem, I think, as you would like you would imagine, right? Yeah. Uh, you you can see even printers on on Earth are are capable. Like you can turn them upside down and mount them on a wall and and then print you know vertically. Right. Um. So that was a that was fairly like an easy easy problem. Um, the, the big problem that we would face is that you're really controlling your environment space. Um, so it's not like Earth where you have like good airflow and, and things like that. Every mm-hmm. single thing that you're bringing up to something like the International Space Station is going to stay there unless it's removed by, by some kind of technology. Right. Um, so most spacecraft have an environmental life support kind of control system that's removing things from the air, like, like ammonia that your skin emits, you know, and all sorts of things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So you, you would basically build these 3d printers into an entirely sealed environment. Um, NASA is very concerned about particulates um, escaping, and then you'd be able to, you know, breathe them in. Um, So there's all these different form factors on the International Space Station for mounting what they call glove boxes or these little sealed experiment boxes. Um, So everything that we designed to to print in space, um, all the machines would be totally sealed and you would basically be removing the the air from those boxes, um, you know, as you're printing. Uh, but it was really interesting at the time, you know, space, it was $10,000 a pound to send anything to space. Um, so it, it's yeah. really interesting. Like, you know, if you can send a big stack of material that could be, you know, a thousand different things if you wanted to versus right. sending a, a one particular wrench that's designed to do one particular thing. Um, that's a huge thing for them. Um, sure. So that, that was very cool. That's so neat. So like what kind of materials were they trying to send up there? Yeah. So the biggest polymer that gets used right now is, uh, is a high temp material um, called Ultim 985. It's a, it's a PEI based material. Um, They really like it. And it's, it's far easier to certify than anything else because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't off gas. So it doesn't produce dangerous chemicals, you know, as it, uh, as it lives its life. 
Uh, it's also fire retardant, which is which is a huge thing in a in an oxygen rich you know sure. space environment. Yeah. So you see, like most of the additive, there's a lot of really cool additive projects that uh, that have gone up to the space station, and they're primarily out of out of Ultim Ten Ten. Okay. Yeah, I, I've definitely heard of Ultim, but haven't seen like any practical parts uh, in person um, printed out of them. So I can't quite wrap my brain around like what kind of different things would you print with Ultim? What are some considerations on that the design end of things for like what would you want to print with Ultim? Yeah. So so one of the one of the interesting things Ultim can be can be difficult to print. It's um, it, it prints in a very hot environment. So. You usually need a chamber between a hundred, a chamber temp of between hundred C and about two hundred C, wow. and and some machines print even as high as like two forty C. Wow! Um, so you're going to have about a two hundred C bed, and then you're going to be printing at nearly three thirty to four hundred C at the nozzle. Yeah. So it, it's a very very hot material. Um, but but it's got a lot of really good advantages, you know. Like we were talking about, it's it's totally uh, fire retardant, which right. is huge. Right. Um, doesn't outgas. It's about a third of the strength of aluminum, so it's very very strong material for for a polymer. Okay. Um, so it's a really well suited material for for things like um, tools. So like wrenches with specific torque factors. So so NASA's big like the first thing NASA ever three D printed really in space was a was a wrench that had a specific torque value attached to it, and it was really cool because they emailed it to space and then they printed it. Yeah, that is so sick. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh man, getting getting the chance to send a file to space to print. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of the the end goal here. That's the dream. Like, can you have that kind of impact um, of you know sending things that just into space? I mean, that's blowing my mind right now. That's so cool. You know, we send files all the time, like across the country. You know, maybe to country to country. Um, you know, around the world. But going out to space, that's a whole different ball game. Um, that's so cool. So you guys, hey, I would have, I would have been the love, loved them in the guy that like sent the email. I probably would have like CC'd all my friends too at the same time. Yeah. Like, and like screen recorded it and like shown yeah. it live and yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. those things to, to get the hype up about it. That's awesome. Any, any job interview I did ever after that, I would just be like, yeah, I sent an email to space. Yep. That's <laughs> on your resume first and yeah. foremost. Like, yeah. What yeah. uh, job qualifications do you have? Well, you know, I'm I'm on the uh, you know space station speed dial for uh, parts, so yeah, that's pretty sweet. Um, very cool. So you had um, what? I mean, would we recognize any of the names of printers that went up to space, or um, or not so much? So, so there's there's been a lot of experimentation. So the the ultimate dream for for NASA is to, is to be able to have a, a high temp printer in space that they can then take the parts and then they can run them through a, uh, you know, something that breaks the parts back down and then they can be able to run parts um, from those recycled parts. Sure. Um, that's, that's the, that's the absolute dream. So there's been a lot of experimentation. Um, there's a company called Maiden Space that has really led the way with, uh, with printers in space. So primarily they've been testing um, most of their hardware um, a couple of years ago, they were acquired by a company called Redwire, um, mm. who's, who's continued to kind of support them. Okay. Um, but it's really neat. They're they're totally built. So there's a there's a glove box system 
that they use on the International Space Station. Kind of kind of think of like a uh, like a server rack. It's a, a general purpose standard that you can send anything. So, for example, another company created a, a fridge, like a like a freezer that could go to space to hold uh, hold specimens, mm-hmm. and it's called the Polar Freezer. But it's designed to fit this server rack essentially, so it can okay. go up. It's got predetermined power, like a certain you know certain voltage, uh, certain bolt patterns, and they just plug it in, you know, snap it right in, and they can do the same with experiments and new technology. So most of the printers that have been going up right now have been designed to kind of fit that that general rack mount system. That's pretty, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, my, my big thing, uh, so the NASA Next Steps program, um, so I, I was our subject matter expert for additive. Um, so basically we designed a, a general mock-up. So what you would call a glove box. So it's a, you've got a 3D printer and then you've got a glove box. And the glove box is basically a sealed environment that you could do like post-processing it. So okay. if you're trying to remove flashing from the printer, you would take the take the part out of the printer, put it in the glove box, you'd put your hands in these gloves, and then you would you would go ahead and remove flashing or any sanding that you need to do, things like that. Right. Um, so we essentially designed a uh, like a high fidelity mock-up that presented a, a 3D printing space and then this post-processing station. Um, so it was really cool. Like we, we actually mocked up the entire giant inflatable spacecraft. So it had everything in it from toilets to, to work areas, to exercise areas. Yeah. Um, and we had four, four NASA astronauts came to our facility and they basically lived in, in our mock-up for a week. And oh, wow. go through their their normal day like they were on the International Space Station. So we would be mic'd in to the astronauts. Um, I designed a bunch of experiments. So they would they would go to the additive manufacturing center, and then they would basically go through uh, what it would be like to to print a part and to post process a part and then to oh. in, install a part. Um, so that was real really neat to get a lot of like firsthand experience on um, what the astronauts are expecting. Um, all of these astronauts had been to space. Um, one of them was even the first uh, um, on the first SpaceX launch, um, the man man launch to the ISS. So that was really really cool to to see, you know, and get their their feedback on on how that that would work. That's pretty nuts. Yeah, I guess they have to you know do quite a bit of practicing before they go up there, right? And if you're able to walk through your daily life, um, including the printing. Um, mm-hmm. that gets rid of a lot of those variables that right off the bat that, you know, when you send it up there, that it's going to work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And for, for astronauts, they're very, um, they're very process oriented too. So, um, their, their time from a, from a monetary perspective, their time is extremely valuable. Um, yeah. so very few things are, are left to chance. Um, there's usually really well-documented steps of, of what they need to complete and what they need to do. So right. it was really neat to kind of kind of flesh that out, um, you know, before sending something like that. That's really neat. Yeah, yeah. that experience. And um, I got to visit um, NASA down in Florida when I was younger um, and just kind of, you know, had that initial wow factor of like what kind of scale you're working on, right, of these uh, these ships that are going up, the um, the overall space station size and kind of like what all those um, you know, different things that they're going to be doing during their lives up there, um, you know, few months to maybe a year or something, you know, having that kind of time 
with them before they go up there? And so did you have to, you know, then have any talks with them while they were up in the space station? Did that, did they go up after that and then continue working with them? So, so most of our projects were, were kind of forward thinking. So they were very R and D oriented. So this would have been stuff that, that didn't immediately go up or get tested. Gotcha. Uh, so you, you, it's it's amazing. Like when you when you start working with a lot of the space programs, it's there's so much pre planning and so much R and D that goes up before before they ever even do like a small a small experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we were doing primarily was kind of things that that are going to be potentially implemented in the next ten to twenty years. It's, okay. it's definitely stuff that that is beyond the space station. So so say you're going to the moon or you're going to Mars or you're right. going out in deeper space. We were trying to tackle a lot of those those problems that those guys would get because the International Space Station, I mean, they get supply missions all the time. Right. Um, something breaks, you get a spare part. And when you're that far out, um, you know, obviously you're not going to get spare parts all the time. You know, you're right. going to have to do more you know, design and modifying things and printing things. Yeah. Um, which is, which is really cool. That'd be my dream job. If they, if they ever wanted to send me to space, just sit on the moon for the last 30 years of my life, design weird parts. Yeah. That'd be great. That sounds like a pretty good, uh, pretty good job gig. I wouldn't mind that. Yeah. Oh, it's my, re- it's my retirement plan. I'm like, I'm like hoping like when I'm 60 <laughs> years old, like I don't care. I'll take the one way trip. I'll just design stuff all day and, and be, yep. and be, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I know there's one company that I was looking into recently that's already in the concrete printing area called Icon or Icon Build, something like that. Yeah. The yeah. for for house printing. Yeah. And they're yeah. looking to print houses on the moon and other other um you know structures on the moon. They're looking to just put their printer basically folded up and put it on a, a rocket and just send it out there. And then it gets dropped on the moon. A couple of, uh, you know, landing feet come out. And then the the rover that it's attached to goes to its pod that it's going to start printing. I mean, that just kind of blows my mind that we're thinking about just sending up that scale of a printer as well. And then the second question that comes to my mind is like, okay, well, what materials are we going to use? on the moon are you going to bring materials up with you are you going to try to source material from the moon or something um have you have you seen what icon's doing yeah so so i'm in austin texas icon's located in austin so they're they're down the road for me um awesome so i I got a couple funny stories about that but yeah (laughs) it's it's really neat technology and in, in bigelow we were we were looking at a lot of that too um essentially the 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 rock material on on uh, on the moon is called regolith and that's what you would end up using um to to build structures it's okay. just too expensive and, it, and it's too resource heavy to to bring anything to space you really right. are going to need to a successful operation is going to use what they have available right uh, so there's all sorts of really interesting concepts uh, we we were essentially um, not looking at an additive, but because we make these inflatable modules, we were looking at basically packaging the moon material into sandbags um, to to help like shield you from things like radiation and to provide insulation. 
Um, but I've seen a ton of really cool concepts too, especially like Icon, um, yeah. where they're using the regolith as an actual printing medium. So they're building essentially a space, uh, a space cement, you know, material. And, right, and they right. Print it. That's insane. That's insane. Did, so have they tested some of that out yet? Do you have any idea if they have like brought material back from the moon and, and used some of that regolith or are they just kind of conceptualizing that as a, as a process right now? So they they have obviously during the Apollo program they they did bring a lot back and they did they did study us they have a really good idea of of what that material is yeah um, so for that reason that there's tons of companies out there that produce uh, simulant gotcha. um, so they, they especially use the simulant for things like rovers testing when they're when they're trying to test their you know rover wheels and and like the things they're going to send to the moon okay. um, but but they they are currently working with NASA and they're they are printing with essentially simulant, okay. um, which is which is really interesting. Uh, the other side of it is yeah. is they're actually printing houses from cement in Austin. Right. Uh, I what yeah, there's one of my favorite coffee shops is uh, is downtown Austin and uh, I'll get a coffee sometimes and I'll go for a walk and uh, I'm like walking through this neighborhood near this coffee shop and I see a gantry and mm -hmm. I'll, just over a fence and I'm like. I think that's a 3D printer. I, I'm pretty sure that's a 3D printer. So, yep. so I go kind of like peek through and uh, that ended up being the site. So they call it house one. So if you're right. really curious about it, look up, look up house one. Um, yeah. I've seen a couple of videos recently just over the past couple of weeks and I've gotten really intrigued by it. You know, my wife and I are looking to try to buy a house here in the next year or so. And I'm like, well, honey, can't we just, you know, print one instead? <laughs> Yeah, and it kills me though too because they're still so expensive. That's like a multi-million dollar like house, right. and I, I love to live in a three D printed house. Oh yeah, and oh, yeah. and you see all the videos about like uh, about like oh this is gonna be low cost and you know we can do houses for the homeless, but it, it's frustrating because then you go and you and you look at the houses that are actually for sale, and it's like oh this is a two million dollar house. You know it's yeah it's, it's crazy. Yeah, but it was really it was really funny because that house one I caught it really early, so I would go for a coffee every week, and then I would kind of like document their process as they built it. Yeah, that is so neat. I've seen the few uh, YouTube videos where they're showing it off to a couple of different companies, and uh, yeah. you know, they're, they're looking at the inner structure. You know, talking about the process of printing it. Um, you know, a lot of people ask, "Well, can you hang stuff on the walls?" <laughs> you yeah. know, the, the layered concrete, but. You know, it's, it's, it's so neat to see, you know, all these different applications for 3D printing because there, there are so many applications for it, you know, and yeah. it's kind of up to people like us sometimes to show people what's possible, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's kind of been my driving factor uh, with Ascent Fabrication and getting into some different things now is that you can print so many different things and just thinking about that, you know, design and how you're going to print that thing, right? Yeah. And so I've been trying to help, you know, other people recently focus on like, what is designed for additive manufacturing? How do we think about these things to actually print well? And what materials do we use? What printers do we use? Um, you know, on the on the low end and on the high end, you know, I've got uh, on the low end here, uh, the artillery Sidewinder X2 on the high end, we've got a, the Filament Innovations uh, Kratos mm -hmm. and we we service the Icarus as well. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, belt printing, so we're into the black belt printer too. Have you seen the black belt? 
Yeah, that's that's been a like a hugely successful printer from from the prosthesis standpoint. People people really seem to love that. The the black belt printer. Yeah, I've yeah. I've seen I've seen I've seen several um, kind of prosthesis companies kind of kind of really adopt that. So that's really cool. Well, when we start to get into like the production level too, right? It's you know how mm-hmm. how fast can we get some of these devices out there, and again, how do we print them with different printers? Um, you know, you mentioned that also, so from Bigelow getting into, um, you had another 3d printing company, right? Um, yeah. So, so Bigelow was interesting during, during the pandemic, uh, you know, Mr. Bigelow, the, the hotel billionaire was, uh, funding our entire company out of pocket. So, so for a billionaire, this, this was his hobby. And, uh, when the pandemic kind of struck, you know, things, things kind of suffered and he, he decided that it's time to, to back his hobby back a little bit. So he, he shut the company down. And, uh, so after that, I, I immediately almost went out to Houston to continue working in space. Um, but, but I had kind of realized that, um, I had done space, I had worked with astronauts and, and I I didn't feel like there was growth that could, that could happen. It was just going to be another project. You know, or another one, and I decided like my favorite part of my day was was working with printing and especially working with other engineers that maybe like weren't used to DFAM or like their ability to to do that yeah. or to design for three D printing. And that was like my favorite thing to do was to help people kind of get their their vision out in a, in a way that made sense for additive. Um, so I, I I looked specifically to work for a a three D printing company, and that's when I found Ascentium. Um, and here in Austin, so I moved from Vegas to Austin and, uh, and went to work for them and essentially Ascentium started off as a materials company. They had a bunch of different phases in their, in their life. And then they, um, eventually branched out to an industrial sized printer that would compete with things like the, the Fortis 400, um, except they didn't limit the material that would go in. So you had full capability to turn all the levers to use whatever material you want, create your own processes. And it was a really interesting, you know, you know, take on it because prior to that, since the eighties, the you know, Stratus has owned FDM. I mean, that was the, the company, right? Right. Um, so that was really neat. So I, I, I worked with the machines and, and kind of next level prototypes. And then I, I also worked with, uh, with all these great materials that we, we invented in house. So we did a lot of like engineering grade materials. So we, we didn't focus as much on like the PLAs and the ABSs. Sure. We did a lot more nylons and high temp nylons and carbon fiber nylons. Uh, we did a, a material that uh, called PPE SCF, which is kind of a, a metallic-y kind of polymer. Uh, we did Ultums and we did Peck and we did Peak and all these just very performance materials. Yeah. Um, so it was really a really neat experience kind of to, to get to play with all these technologies. Yeah, I feel like there's there's so much to be done on that high end as well uh, with those machines and making them even more useful for you know other companies that aren't just Stratasys size maybe. Um, yeah. You know, getting getting down to kind of the the middle level companies and and for them to be able to you know help bring some manufacturing you know back to the u.s and uh have a lot of this you know stuff done in-house now um you know you mentioned one of your favorite filament companies um you know coming back and being local to you you know so with what essentium has kind of started 
uh, on the very high end of things. How were they starting to use it? What kind of industries were they in? And um, because I know that they were involved a little bit in the prosthetics and orthotics industry um, early, early on. And, and one thing that I remember back from, you know, probably around that 2015, 2016 timeframe, um, they were trying to use microwaves or something like that to help solidify the, the Z bonding um, interlayer, you know, adhesion. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Ascendium was, was a, a startup that that's like fundamentally, they, they weren't right. to the size of something like Stratasys. Um, so they were definitely a, attempting to find uses um, in additive wherever we could absolutely find uses. So that was one of the projects. Uh, I didn't specifically work on that one called, it's called Flash Fuse. Um, okay. And essentially they're trying to get, the, the idea is that you're trying to get closer to the strength of an injection molded part um, oh. of the Z, the Z bonding. So your weakest point um, right. is going to be where those, those layers are trying to adhere. So the idea is, is that you use, uh, you use heat or you use, um, you know, electrical arcing to essentially fuse those, those layers together. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's a project that I think there is still ongoing for them, um, trying to really get the, you know, get all the details ironed out. Uh, that would be, I mean, a huge for, for the industry as far as sure. making injection molding like parts, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, but but application wise, we we were all over the place. So that that was particularly my job, and I and I was kind of on the uh, the advanced application side. So we we were trying to to think of uh, what people could use our materials for in the future, and we were kind of agnostic to industry. It, it, it just you know we were trying to find the best use of our materials and and or our three D printing technology that we possibly could, and it's wherever we could provide value. Um, was was important to us so we did a little bit on the prosthetics industry um kind of designing foots and and things like that we did some really interesting testing around that it was a really cool like r d environment too yeah um so that was that was neat that's pretty cool yeah i know with um they were looking at prosthetic sockets at one point and i think again they're still kind of sort of in the prosthetics industry a little bit i did see um, I did see a 3D printer from them, um, the HS whatever, maybe H HSE something or other, um, at one of the uh, conferences in prosthetics or orthotics. I think it was mm -hmm. not last year, but the year before maybe. Um, and they had the printer there. They were uh, mainly printing, I think, just maybe PETG, um, you know, for prosthetic test sockets and looking at some of those carbon fiber nylon blends actually too i saw probably one prosthetic socket that was printed by that too um and you know just to have that um at scale you know they're in this prosthetics orthotics industry at a conference i mean people were you know ooing and eyeing over it um you know all over the place because you know our industry has never seen that kind of technology too so it's it's pretty neat to see you know all these different companies who are again looking for applications you know wherever to use what they have going on. Yeah, it's it's an interesting. The, the industry is kind of interesting right now because you've you've got such a developed like consumer um, printer space, mm -hmm. and then you've got the really high end stuff. So the, it, I feel like the the way of thinking for people now is like either I'm doing PLA or I'm doing metal. 
and yeah. it's really not the case it's like there's this huge spectrum of high performance materials that fill in the gap between metal and something like poa right and i i think it's that i'm like really excited about companies that are really delving into that that kind of high performance uh, area because it, it's i mean they're high end i mean they're they're not cheap materials and they they present significant amounts of strength and they're all there's, there's a ton of great materials for specific uses you know whether you're making molds or sockets or mm -hmm. you know bracketing you know it, it's sure. a really it's a really neat space to be in sure yeah i again with with looking at how we're getting um you know more and more outside of the prosthetics orthotics industry as well i love again trying to find these useful cases in our everyday life for for 3d printed parts right and you know yeah. finding that right material is is part of that um, I wanted to highlight your uh, your one of your recent uh, you know kind of fun prints the the mailbox that you just made. Um, mm -hmm. I thought that was so cool. You know, can you take me through a little bit of, of that like design thought in your head and like what materials were printed out of it? Um, what printers did you use? Yeah, um, so that was kind of an interesting project. So I, I'm always looking for for problems. I, I find that's the, the the hardest part sometimes about you know creating these additive projects is you you want to find a really cool problem that you can easily use the technology to solve. Right. Um, so that's what I'm always on the lookout for. So in my case, I had I had a mailbox that was you know almost you know falling on the ground. So I needed needed to change something. Um, we were talking a lot about Ascendium at the time about um, UV resistant materials. And I find in the industry in general, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding on to how well materials do um, out in the sun. Mm -hmm. So if you know anything about Texas, Austin, Texas is as hot and sun heavy as you're ever going to get. Right, for sure. So it seemed like a great opportunity to get some like really hands-on uh, ideas of how materials are going to work. So I started designing this mailbox. I wanted to print the the entire main mailbox structure in one single piece. Um, so I was specifically targeting, um, at the time I was working at Ascentium, so I had access to an HSE 180, which yep. is a really big, high temp, big giant build platform industrial yep. printer. Right. Um, so I definitely targeted that for printing the, um, the main body. Okay. Um, and, and then the whole idea, I, I kind of used my experience in space travel to kind of uh, to inform my, my general design. Sure. Um, if you look on the outside of something like the, the space station, there's all sorts of experiments that are like on the outside. They're, they're just bolted to structures and things like maybe material coupons and they're, they're, they're testing how well it does out in the, in the vacuum of space, you know, okay. things like that. So I wanted to design a mailbox that you could really, uh, you could bolt an experiment onto. Or if I wanted to do a solar panel, I could bolt the solar panel on. Um, so I designed it to be this very modular, very add-on friendly uh, box, essentially. Um, so I, I ended up using a, a, a material, um, I use PETG. Um, if you don't use materials that are specifically targeted at UV, PETG is going to be your your best case. It, it's got a really decent um, like UV compatibility. Okay. So I went with a material that I thought was really cool. Uh, a company called Greengate 3D, um, and they do. Too. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. they're really cool. They do entirely recycled filament, right? Which is right. primarily recycled filament, which is really cool. So it's made from industrial scrap. Okay. Um, yeah. 
you know, I'm, I'm always conscious if I, if I can, I, I, I would like to limit the, you know, the amount of plastic out there. So sure. um, it seems like a really good kind of, kind of deal for, for something like a mailbox. Um, and then I, I started designing a lot of other things. So, you know, a mailbox has a door and a mailbox has a flag and, yep. and, and I, I tried to think of some other uses uh, for something that would always be outside in my front yard. Um, so I basically targeted like performance materials because I, I was really curious to get some real time knowledge of, uh, of how they react to, to weather and rain and sun and, you know, all those crazy things. Yeah. Uh, so I built a door for the mailbox entirely out of Oldham. It was a material we were playing around with the Centium at the time. It was actually gray. Um, Oldham historically is this, this gold mustard color. Yeah. And, uh, it's not sexy at all. It's a, it's a horrible <laughs> color, but yeah. that's, that's the natural color, right? That yeah. Thinks about. Yeah. But for years, it was all that was available. No, nobody put any any work into to coloring Oldham. It, it was right. uh, it was very practical material. You you used it because you really needed the the the, the properties of it. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so I did that because I thought it was cool. So I, I did a yeah. white Pet G mailbox, and then I I did a, a door that was uh, entirely Oldham. Um, I did a I did a flag that was Pet G. Um, it's it's this weird kind of three D flag that uh, I used a paint that was UV compatible with a, with a UV clear coat to, to kind of okay. test how that, how that did. I've always been kind of curious, sure. you know, on some of these coatings. Okay. Uh, I, I used, um, like, one of the first experiments that I mounted to it was a, a weather station. So if you go on, uh, if you, yeah, if you, if you yeah, go on to Weather Underground, you can see how the weather is at my mailbox in Austin, Texas. That is so cool. Yeah, being able to connect to something like that—that's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, I thought that I thought that was super cool. So I, I did that. I, I used a really cool um, PEI-based material called Duratem um, to do that because it was it was kind of tall and Duratem is kind of shock resistant. So I, I thought somebody would come and knock it or something, and so I, I did something that would kind of support that. Okay. Um, but I but I ended up putting it all together and uh, it, it's been out there for weeks. I've been getting getting mail in it and been getting weather and uh, now I'm trying to get mail. Out. That's good. That's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was my biggest fear was the mail the mail company or the you know the postal service would have been like, no, we don't you know right. like that. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you see people with like a, a fish head or you know something like that as their mailbox, and you have to yeah. think that as long as it's a little latch door that people can put mail into and you can put up a flag if you have something to put out and it has to be what just at the right height at the right you know yeah exactly the street i mean they shouldn't really care whether it's 3d printed or not right so it turns out the post office has done lots of ergonomic studies about mailboxes hmm. so they, they have published a standard so as long as you follow their standard get the right height Yep. Um, you can use certain colors, so it's but the the colors are very specific to be able to you know uh, to use their standard, but okay. the right size, the right door handle. There was a, a surprising amount of uh, of uh, thought that went into what mailbox should look like on on behalf of the postal service, which was which is kind of interesting. Like I didn't expect that at all. No, yeah. I mean, you think about the ergonomics of someone being in, you know, the car like that, and what's the easiest way for them to reach out of the car and, and you know, yeah. 
successfully put mail in the box without having to reach way out of the car or, you know, some weird contraption where uh, you're trying to, you know, actually be very dexterous, but most of them just have like a little, a little latch to grab onto, right? That's kind of interesting mm -hmm. to think about too. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody out there's job was to, to quantify what a mailbox should look like. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> funny. That's awesome. I, I like the, uh, you know, the way that you've made it modular too, to kind of, you know, accommodate these other things to it. So you could, you know, again, potentially customize it to have your, you know, your door number on there, your family name on there or something mm -hmm. like that. Is that uh, frowned upon in the, um, you know, the, uh, the steps to build a mailbox or was it, did they have any kind of customization that, you know, people were saying no to? No, they're, they're, they're totally, you're totally allowed to do names, door numbers. Uh, they're, okay. they're particular about colors. So they, they want the flag um, to, to stand out from the rest of the mailbox as a whole. Yeah. So I think that was their big, their big concern for that, but it, it's been neat. I, I, I built a little, um, a little device that sits on the top that holds uh, material coupons, which was kind of cool. So I printed little samples of all these different engineering materials. Yeah. And it basically, they sit in there and then they get sun all the time. Um, so I'm really, I'm really excited. I know about how these materials should do, but it, it's going to yeah. be really neat to see, you know, do colors fade? Do they become brittle? Like what happens right. to them actually? And you've got an awesome science project going on right at your mailbox. You know, that's, that's yeah, sweet. yeah. Um, the, uh, the pedestal that it's attached to, um, is that printed as well? Or um, is that made out of wood or? I just, I just maintained a wood one on that. Uh, some, someday it would be neat to go crazy and just do additive for the whole thing. I, I, I imagine yeah. some kind of weird, like generative design bracket or something, you know. That's pretty sweet. I gotta wait. I gotta wait till I get a metal printer, you know, at the house. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Go for it. Nice. Well, on our we're gonna have uh, a pretty customized black belt here pretty soon. Um, that's gonna be a dual extrusion, extra wide build volume, and obviously printing continuously. So um, you know, we could print something as long as and tall, I guess, then uh as a mailbox um, you know, pedestal that uh that you yeah, uh, you know put something else on so yeah let me know when you're ready to work on that project let's uh let's do some work together yeah. <laughs> dual extrusion so you can do uh so you can do like support material and sure yeah yeah, yeah. that's the one nice thing about printing with a, a belt printer though too is that you're printing at that angle and it could be at about 45 35 or 15 even um you can you can change the angle that you're printing at with this specific printer so you don't necessarily have to have support material based off of you know where you're actually putting those overhangs um but could print yeah. supports that make things pretty interesting um but yeah dual, dual materials i mean that's dual materials is the coolest part i mean yeah you could do tpu combined with something rigid that'd be really nice Right. Yeah. So, I, you know, thinking about all these applications, um, you know, for different 3D printed things, um, I see you got a, a pegboard up on your wall there. Um, is yeah. that 3D printed as well? Yeah. So that that's a project that I, I supported on Kickstarter. I, th I thought it was yeah. really cool. It's called Threadboard. Like you should totally look it up. It's, it's, a, it's a cool project. I think um, I've seen it but, briefly too. Yeah. Yeah. So they did a really neat thing. Um, 
with their with their marketing so so it's a kickstarter but they don't deliver any hardware it, it's all design files which i thought was really cool and then they they also implemented a lot of like uh social media marketing so they bought a lot of ad time okay and i thought it was really neat so they, they raised almost one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for for a project that's as simple as is a pegboard yeah um and and they just deliver design files, so that was really cool. But it, it's it's a they you basically get a zip file that's almost a thousand parts, um, just all different variations of of these boards. So essentially, what they are, they're little holes and they're they're threaded. So right. you you print these little bolts and then they slide in. So if you want to make you know some specific holder that holds your drill or something, it's easy to design. You know, put the holes at the right spacing and then yeah. screw it right on. Um, so I thought that's really cool. So I, I'm, I'm really excited about projects like this um, that, that people can do. And, and I, I thought that in particular, they, their, their ability to market it and, and raise that much money for, a, for just a, a clever design, I thought was a really, a really cool what masterclass and, and what 3D printing could be. For sure. I mean, there's there's so many people like that, too, that I feel like we could we could all learn from. And obviously, if they're putting some of these you know designs out there, um, they're also just helping with the adoption of 3D printing too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, finding these practical uses for uh, 3D printing, I think, is is really going to be key to it becoming even more mainstream and having, you know, a chocolate printer in in uh, most homes. You know, having a you know different pr- buying a printer instead of buying physical products from a store, I think, is going to be right. more, more interesting here as we create these more online marketplaces for, you know, buying things like that, uh, the threadboard and, you know, different types of products like that. That's kind of where I personally see some of this stuff going is, you know, we have so many bright minds out there that can design different things like that. Um, But then it's about how do we connect them, you know, down the path with like, you know, people that actually want to buy their products um, what's the right, you know, medium for them to sell those products in? Do they sell mm-hmm. just the products? Do they sell just the design files and then other people can print them? Um, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Like when I, when I started an additive, it, just the fact that we were printing things was crazy. And, yeah. and there was a huge push designing the actual hardware. But when you have printers that now have come out like the bamboo, that's, that's almost the easiest printer that I've ever used is process wise. So it's, it's really an interesting time because now I, I think we really need to definitely up um, the amount of designs that are, that are going out there and, and create these libraries of, of parts and things that people can print, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is really cool. Cause I, I don't think everybody, you know, not everybody has the mind for, for CAD and, and to be able to design things. So I, I really am really excited about these these marketplaces that create you know monetary incentives um, for people to to solve problems and and, and post things. Right. Um, I think I saw one the other day that was really amazing. Uh, you know, like just add-ons for IKEA furniture because that stuff is so modular yeah. anyway. It's, right. It was an amazing amount of like you know they were able to take something from IKEA and absolutely change the way that it's used or really augment the way that it's used using printing, which I think, I think is really cool. And I think we need things like that to really, to, to create a, you know, a, a, an environment where the printer is, is, uh, is a utility, you know, in your house. 
Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, having that ability to, you know, print stuff on demand as thoughts come to mind. And, um, you know, again, like you said, take advantage of those people that that do know how to come about this thoughtful design process for printing purposes um, mm -hmm. and start to create this consumer aspect of things. Right. Um, yeah. You know, I think, you know, growing the consumer side of um, 3D printing where, you know, we, we go to something like Amazon or we go to the store, you know, Target or, you know, some other pretty well-known store and we know exactly what we're going to buy there, right? You know, mm -hmm. we kind of have these preconceived notions about what the products are when we go in there and what we can use them for. And I think we're just barely scraping the surface for how 3D printing can help with that, right? Um, mm -hmm. you know, so that's, that's kind of something that I'm starting to work on a little bit. Um, I, I do have this, this shirt here, ask me about arachnid 3d, uh, <laughs> check out, check out arachnid3d.com. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's kind of this, this thought process of like, okay, let's create a marketplace for people to go to consumer wise. Let's create um, a space for where designers can go and show off their design files. Maybe they don't have a printer themselves, um, but they could otherwise just utilize their design skills and send mm -hmm. those designs to someone who would just buy the design, whether that's a company or a consumer. And then those people are printing it on site, um, you know, within their own homes or within another business. Um, I think something like that would kind of you know, start to break this other barrier of like, what do we do with 3D printing in our own lives? You know, um, like I 3D printed a um, a set of floating shelves for myself. Um, you know, I've got a floating shelf design. I've got a, a garbage can design um, that we've printed as well. Um, so like very useful, thoughtful things that can be printed in otherwise and used in our homes. You know, like the threadboard behind you. Yeah. I, I mean, I always thought automotive would be a really good, uh, a really good segue into that. So you've got like, um, I, I think out of anybody, Ford did the did the marketing on the um, the Maverick truck, um, where essentially they released some parts that you could 3D print. Um, but it, it always bothered me because if you look at the Maverick, it's they've got uh, like one or two of these just slots, these V slots. Mm -hmm. that basically it's pretty much only for a cup holder or, or something like that okay um but but i i really think that like automotive can go a lot further because that's an area where you you break things constantly like the sure. uh, you know, little pieces of door trim break uh i've, I've got a uh, an electric mustang and there's a, a tiny community has been kind of propped up because it's got a lot of these plastic parts that uh that break so there's been some companies that have come through and they've just scanned and released the scan files for okay. uh, replacement parts. Um, like for example, on, on the front of this car, it's yeah. got these air flaps that that open up to uh, decrease like drag on the on the the part or on the uh, on the front of the car. But they're uh, they're they're these really small plastic flaps and they're really low to the ground. So if you hit a tire or you hit something on the interstate, yeah, yeah. shatter. And, and these parts ended up being, you know, a few hundred dollars to replace oh, yeah. the tiny part. So everybody's been printing them. And it's it's been this great thing. Somebody just scanned one of them one day and then 
people have been loading them up on the printer and just replacing them. And, and I, I think that's like such a great, you know, application. Yeah, for sure. I mean, anything that's going to be, you know, broken one day and designed and printed the next, I mean, that's definitely where things are definitely going. I had a, a woman come in the other day who had broken a part for her drawer, um, you know, kind of an antique kitchen drawer set. So she wasn't mm-hmm. going to find the part anywhere, right? Um, but she had the other side. So we were able to reverse engineer it and, you know, print it out of PLA in a matter of an hour. Um, and she, you know, this was kind of the first instance where we went from, you know, initialized design in a half hour to printing in an hour. She comes back after lunch and she has her part and she goes home with it. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a pretty neat, you know, uh, application for printing too, I think. And, um, you know, I had, uh, just two weeks ago, there was a gear in my uh, garage door that was broken in half for whatever reason, just split, you know, probably fatigue over time. Mm-hmm. went on the company's website um you know they didn't have that specific part uh, as a replacement part that i could purchase so what did i do but reverse engineer it and uh and print it and now it's working perfectly fine you know otherwise yeah. we had to replace the entire you know unit garage door unit um so i think it's a it's a really neat you know way to utilize printing Yet, you know, people don't quite have those uh, design skills like you and I to to be able to do that. So, yeah, kind of finding those instances to be able to put that out to the community, I think, is pretty powerful. Yeah, I, I think that's really cool. That's a world that I want to live in, right, from a sustainability yeah. standpoint. I've, sure. I've got tons of products that I just love this product and maybe one thing breaks and then they, they just don't, you know, it's not made anymore. So you have to replace right. it. Right. So I, I just love that idea of having these, uh, you know sort of modified parts everywhere i think that's like really cool yeah and i think it's a real cool area for like design software too i i don't think a, a lot of attention sometimes gets paid to, to sure. these design tools but you know as ai comes you know to fruition and things i think being able to replicate parts i think is going to be a lot easier too yeah definitely i mean it's only going to be a matter of time where you, you just speak into a a bot like chat gpt or something and mm-hmm. out, out spits an stl file to print right i think there's yeah. something pretty similar to that where you don't like just kind of prompt it to do anything but you type in you know from a library of things they've already designed and you can just have that stl file like prepared for you um, I forget what company that was that kind of creates the STL file on demand like that, but yeah, I think we're kind of starting to move in that direction. Um, what do you think they could do about, you know, printer settings? Because I think that's like the next bane of existence of 3d printing is that like, well, okay, I've got this file that, you know, person a, um, printed just fine on whatever printer, Yet, you know, I only have the STL file and not the G code, or it might be a completely different printer, you know, so how do we kind of help fix that, like knowledge gap of printer settings? What would you do? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a difficult problem. I, I that's, that's one I've put a lot of, uh, a lot of work in, uh, you know, especially at Ascentium, um, being able to, cause some, I mean, sometimes even the printers themselves, you know, have, uh, this one prints better than this one and, and you right. have to quantify why does this printer, they're the same model, you know, right. why is one getting better results? Um, my thought is that it really comes down to, to printer calibration. So mm-hmm. I, I think um, 
the best consumer level printer, and I, I've said this a couple of times, but uh, the Bamboo Lab printer. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that they do is uh, resonance calibration. So it, it vibrates the machine and then it tries to, to counteract the amount that the machine vibrates. And I, I suspect that that has a lot to do with why the parts are so good. Right. Um, I, I think really pushing these technologies that that calibrate and monitor all the processes of the machine um, would go a really long way of, of creating processes that work across you know multiple machines. Because mm -hmm. the problem with 3D printing too is you have so many different levers to, to turn. I right. mean, brand of material is a big thing. Like what, yeah. what is the quality and you know the, the, the variance and diameter as it goes you know through the machine. Right. Um, that's a big thing. You've got nozzle size, you know, all these different processes right. um, that, that come into play. Um, so I, I personally think that printers need to learn to, to, to quantify and understand um, what's happening um, as material goes through um, to be able to get that better. Uh, right. Because I, I think with the technology the way it is right now, it's it's going to be up to the specific user and their their experience of of dealing with and, and noticing, you know, why something is is happening. Right. Right. Yeah. Having that last part, you know, knowing why something is going wrong and then knowing how to fix it um, or yeah. at least one or two pathways to fix it, I think is definitely that that missing link. Because um, you're relying right now, you're just relying on um, on experience versus right. hardware. Yeah. And if you rely on hardware, I, I think it would be, it'd be easier to quantify for sure. Right. Absolutely. So with the, with the bamboo, um, so I've been looking at it for a while now, um, definitely intrigued by it and it's multi-material, you know, or multi-color at least capability, mm -hmm. right? Um, do, am I, am I right in, um, the fact that they have their own slicer program that's just for their printer, right? So it's sort of, it's, it's still Prusa slicer and they, they okay. basically created their own flavor of Prusa. So it's a, okay. it's a fork of, of Prusa. Um, okay. and most of the, the additions that they've added to, to the Prusa slicer have yeah. been in the form of UI changes. So it's easier yeah. to use, but I think the underlying technology is still very much influenced by Prusa. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I love Prusa slicer, uh, use it quite a bit. Uh, use a bunch of different slicer programs depending on which printer I'm using. Um, but, but you don't find, because I, I find that too. Like I, for me, like yeah. people ask slicer I use, I use like seven of them. Yeah. And yeah. it just depends on what I'm doing. Purchase slicer, Simplify 3D, Cura, uh, Idea Maker, Raise 3D. I mean, I think there's, I, I say that not every slicer is created equal, that, you know, different slicers have different settings. And for whatever reason, those settings work a little bit better with their own printers, <laughs> right? Yeah. So like, I'm not going to use Idea Maker from Raise 3D for my fellow innovations, Kratos, um, you know, and, and yet again, you know, the printer companies are looking at trying to help, um, you know, more fine tune some of those print settings that, you know, maybe are a little bit more abstract to think about. Um, so like Phil Innovations just came out with a, a beta version of their software um, uh, that's called Odin. And, uh, you know, they got the whole Greek mythology going on there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Pretty, pretty awesome stuff. But so there's a company from Denmark, Create It Real, um, who's doing a lot of uh, custom slicing, um, you know, capabilities and building out these UIs. 
Um, so Odin is one slicer specific to that printer. Um, I, I think that might, you know, and again, with the bamboo instance, you know, they're trying to take some of that guesswork out of it, right? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and trying to make that a little bit more plug and play for the user. Yeah. yeah. It, it comes back to that, like either the old argument from the, the early 2000s, 90s, you know, Apple versus uh, versus Microsoft, you know, right. It, it, you're always going to get better performance out of a, out of a closed system, but you're going to get a lot less freedom. And it, it's, right. you've seen the same thing with Stratasys and companies yeah. like Ascentium too. It's you have to decide what you, what you want to do. Um, one, one of the areas that I, I think is like a really good compromise is I, I think 3D printer companies, uh, you know, a lot of them choose to design their own hot end. And, and that hot end geometry really, really affects, uh, you know, the, the process of, of printing. Right. Um, so I really like to go towards, towards companies like E3D or, or Slice Engineering um, yep. because I, I, I think that does a lot to, to kind of equalize the, the results that you're getting, um, at least if most companies are using similar um, nozzle geometry, you know, that, that eliminates a large section of the, of the problems or, or the, the unknowns, basically. Right, uh, right. Yeah, and you're getting different, um, you know, print qualities out of different setups like that too, right? Because some of the yeah. hot end materials aren't all the same. They're aluminum, they're stainless steel, they're mm -hmm. brass, they're, you know, a bunch of different, you know, capabilities and, and you know, different ways to set up a system, um, you know, but then you've got, you know, like instance, Raise 3D has their own nozzles for their own machines. And you can't yeah. really put a Revo, you know, hot end on a, on a race 3d printer. Um, so while that's limiting, I understand why they're trying to limit some of that where, you know, they're trying to make it easy for the people to use the machine. Well, uh, it's still a revenue stream too, though. You know, you make yeah, your own, right. nozzle, you're the only one who does It's still a consumable thing too. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but I, I would push, like, I, I get frustrated with that. And I, I would push additive companies to, to really adopt these, mm -hmm. these third parties. Like the Revo system is so great because the, you know, there's a huge amount of, uh, of nozzle variants. Yeah. And then you've got the high flow ones and you've got the abrasive ones. And, and I, I would love four or five companies to, to make these hot ends. And then, uh, you know, every, every printer to go out and, and, and use them. I think that would be cool. For sure. Yeah. I haven't yeah. used any of the Revo hot ends yet myself, although um, they look pretty intuitive to use, right? I think it's one of their reasons for um, coming up with that design was just a simple change mechanism, right? Of changing yeah. the nozzle and making that a little bit more safe for people, right? Yeah. So we're, we're talking about my, like, uh, I, I was talking the other day, my nephew is just starting to get into 3D printing and we're talking about what printer would be best for him. And I, one of the things that I think is great about the Revo is, is historically you have your, uh, your filament path from the motor, you've got your heat break, and then you've got your, you know, your heat sink, and then you've got the, the, the nozzle itself and the, you know, all that. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden that entire nozzle is one single filament path. Mm -hmm. So for my nephew, who's not the age where he could, you know, unclog a nozzle and drill okay. out a nozzle, right. it, it would be great because you just, you just unscrew the entire filament path and then put a new one in. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I really like the, the direction that they, that they've gone on that. And I, and I like that they've paid attention um, to those of us using like carbon fiber filaments, 
or yeah. wanting to do large layer heights and do high flow. I yeah. feel like they haven't really left anybody out of the out of the fold, which I think is is really cool. Neat. Yeah, I'll have to look into that a little bit more. Um, just started a, a reseller relationship with E3D, so that's been uh, oh, cool nice. that partnership with them. You know, we so I do I do resell um, you know materials, some materials that we use here at Ascent Fab, um, just to help again people like find what are good materials? You know, if you know they work and they work consistently, have those as a, as a resource for people. Um, and then I'm constantly getting, you know, some consumable equipment. So E3D has been, you know, my go-to for that as well. Um, and then looking at some of those printers that, uh, you know, I know work pretty well too. So having the relationships with the printer um, manufacturers that we do like, uh, like Thorn Innovations and then, um, on the low end, I really like the Artillery Sidewinder X2. Um, I just think like right out of the box, it's it's so simple to set up for people. It's got a large build volume. Um, you know, it checks off a lot of the boxes, maybe not all the boxes, but for someone who's looking to get, you know, into 3D printing for 300 bucks, you know, really a, a pretty nice out of the box printer, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, can be used for months at a time and doesn't have too, too many issues with it. Um, but yeah, love this kind of, you know, education that's going on right now, um, around trying to, uh, have younger people, uh, being in 3d printing. Uh, you know, yesterday I had a, uh, a 10 year old in here, um, that he brought in his Ender three and he's like, it's broken. I don't know. I can't do anything with it. Um, just take a guess at what, you know, was broken about the, the printer. Was it uh, you, probably clog or thermosistor out? Uh, so it was close to clogging. So basically it was just a Z offset issue and and bed leveling, really. Um, uh -huh. So the, the Z offset was uh, just too small. So the nozzle was right up against the bed and <laughs> effectively scraping the bed, um, you know, and the, the bed was definitely unlevel as well. Um, but, you know, back pressure up into the nozzle. So he wasn't getting anything printing. And he's like, oh, but I noticed something on this um, this screw back here next to the motor uh, at the at the extruder. And I'm like, yeah, you see the plastic getting built up. And he's like, but there's nothing coming out. I'm like, well, yeah, we have to look at, you know, what's happening down below in order to figure out what's happening above. Right. So yeah. uh, I love that kind of hands on teaching um, of that kind of younger age to to see the gears turning in their heads about like, what can they use 3D printing for? Oh yeah, I, I think that's so cool. Like like I mentioned before, like I was the last generation that like grew up without additive. Yeah. And I, I think about all those those crazy projects that I worked on trying to trying to figure out how to build things, you know, with like <laughs> like I made my lathe, you know, and it and it's what what could I have built if I had additive? Like I just right. I, I, I go back in time, but like, here's an ender three. Good luck. You know? <laughs> right, right. And now and now for the next 30 years, you know, you're gonna be on the moon printing, right? So <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. That's that's the goal. That's the goal. It's funny when you talk about like small problems. Like I, I used to live when I lived in Vegas, I lived by a like one of those Amazon warehouses that would like they yeah. would get returns and they would auction it off. They got so many like Creality Ender threes and stuff, and I, I needed just throughput because I was printing so much. So I needed you know extra printers floating around. Yeah, and I would go there and I would buy a printer for fifty dollars. It was almost always like the thermosistor was out or it had a little clog or like calibration problems. It was just yeah. something simple. 
Right. And almost all have that printer running, you know, in an hour or something. Yeah. So, so you're definitely, you hit it when you were, you asked that question too. It's like, you know, how do you, you, you get to the point where people don't have to deal with, you know, those problems. Right. Right. Because I think a lot, again, people are interested in 3d printing, but you know, what is going to be the, the time to market for, you know, this educational side to really uptick, you know, it's, uh, so there are a lot of 3D printers now in high schools already. Um, yeah. My local high school has had 3D printers since right when I graduated high school in 2011. Mm -hmm. uh, so right after that, they started to get into 3D printing. They had laser engraving, right? Um, but they yeah, you know, but they didn't have a 3D printer in 2011. Um, you know, so they're they're in high schools. They're they're in some middle schools now. Um, that's definitely a great age for people to be getting into it. Um, but then, you know, once you get into college again, too, it's like, okay, well, you you aren't otherwise going to use it unless you're taking a course that's using it, um, or if you're not working for a company that's not using it. And then you fall into the other bin of like, okay, I'm just a not just, but I'm a, I'm a consumer level and, and tinkerer here in my own time. Um, so I think that's like, again, the, the need for education and like that kind of outreach, I think, you know, has to happen uh, in some other way too, in a, in a communal fashion. Yeah. Well, they need to start, they need to start CAD early. Um, yeah. I, I was always lucky. My, my dad was uh, designed CAD software um, when I was growing up. So I, at a really young age, I had access to to CAD and being That's able cool. to design things. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that, that was always super useful. So like, I know it's possible. And, and, and I feel like you should almost offer CAD as a, uh, as like a language um, <laughs> credit, you know, similar right. like programming, right? You can yeah. take, you know, take German, take Spanish, take CAD or take, you know, you know, Python or something, you know? Makes like, sense I, to me. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that definitely it's 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 like the it's a big it's a steep learning curve because, you know, it's not just a printer, but it's you know, definitely the the software design standpoint, too. Right. I, it's funny, like you talk about 2011, like when I when I was in college, I graduated in 2011 from, yeah. from college. Yeah. And uh, we had a printer on site and it was a tiny SLA printer. And it was in okay. one of our professors office. I never saw it in the four years that I was there. Yeah, I could uh, I could send him an email to print a part and then slide cash under his office door <laughs> to cover the cost of the yeah. part, and then the part would arrive on my desk, you know. But <laughs> so I never I was never plugged into any of the okay. The, so it's really it's really cool for me to see like you know high schools having it. I think that's like so so great, so different from, yeah. from you know what I, what I went through. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was in college, uh, my senior year, um, in my undergrad in 2015. Um, so again, it was until my senior year that the college purchased a 3d printer. It was, a an Ultimaker two, And, uh, you know, so they're at that consumer level, but on the higher end of the consumer level already. Um, and, uh, my, my senior, um, you know, capstone had to be focused on like an in individual project. And my mentor said, well, you know, we have this 3d printer thing down there in the basement that no one's used for the past few yeah. months, uh, you know, go down there figure it out and uh, do something with it. So, 
that's kind of my introduction into 3D printing was a crash course on my own, you know, completely self-taught in that respect. Yeah. The, I think that's, you know, one of the best ways to learn too, though, is just kind of figuring it out and trying something out, seeing what's working, what's not, and see how you can fix it. Yeah, it's it's a great way to learn, but I, I also um I also think especially like universities. Like I, I I strong I feel strongly that my university, I, I went to Auburn and yeah. I feel like we should have adapted uh 3D printing early. Yeah. And and I, I think um I think most universities did probably a pretty poor job of of bringing bringing additive like as soon as MakerBots came out that should have been it you know they should have immediately bought four or five of those and then right. and then you know saw how it how it went mm-hmm. um so I think that's really neat so I think like I'm a big believer like the the whole education system um around you know additive you know needs needs a little bit of a, a facelift but yeah I mean to see where they've come in you know 12 years even the last eight and five years I think a lot of that consumer level printing has just skyrocketed Mm -hmm. uh, and we're barely touching the surface. You know, Uh, there are so many other use cases for 3D printing that, um, you know, we just even haven't even thought of yet or haven't had the, the, the need to think of it. Right. If something breaks, maybe then we'd think of trying to print that part. Um, But then maybe we're getting into the next stage here in the next few years where, more companies are saying, well, why am I not 3D printing this part already? And mm-hmm. you know, making that a little bit more modular and easier for people to replace too. Um, you know, there's uh, a lot less inventory to carry. Um, you know, some of the benefits could go on and on for it, but I'm I'm really excited about, you know, the next, I'll say the next generation of 3D printers and designers coming out because, um, they're going to influence this so much to where, um, you know, the possibilities are endless. Do you feel like we're in, so I, I separate it. So like you have a lot of the guys who worked on printing in like the, the late eighties, you know, yeah. with, with 3D systems, you know, creating like the STL format in like 87, you've got a lot of the guys who were doing it in the nineties, but I, I feel like there was a real like next generation of 3D printing, I think really started like with the MakerBot in like 2012 or so. Yep. Uh, do you feel like we're in a, like another like another round of of a, a generation, or or do you think it's uh, kind of a continuation? Um, yeah, I think it's I think we're in a, a new round from when I started to get into three D printing in two thousand fifteen, mm-hmm. even because now these consumer level printers are just getting better and mm-hmm. staying pretty cheap. Um, you know, so I think because of the you know, updates to the hardware and to the slicer programs. Um, I think we're we're starting to get to a point where more people are being able to adopt 3D printing. Um, you know, the 10-year-old that came in yesterday, he was just on Thingiverse and, you know, looking around at files that he could download and print, um, you know, and I had only had him in here one time before this. Uh, he got the printer for Christmas uh, this year. And, uh, you know, b- right before that I had him into the office and showed him one of the coasters, our logoed coaster that I print out as a, as a giveaway for people. Um, and, uh, you know, he was just kind of, uh, wowed at that fact that, you know, h- himself at 10 years old could do something like that, could create something like that. 
And because this generation is so much more digitally oriented, even than my generation is already, um, you know, I, I think we're we're at a point where the adoption rate is only going to go up too because of social media. You know, I, I lean pretty heavily uh, for inspiration on, you know, people like you that are active and posting a lot to um, show people what's possible. Right. So that's what that's what I'm trying to, to help out with, too, is just show people what's possible. How do we do this? How do we think about going about that design process? Um, because, yeah, it's I think we're in a, um, you know, a pretty pivotal pivotal stage here where we're going to start to see a lot more 3D printing happening. Um, just in our local communities too. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, with that, uh, there's been a lot we've talked about, you know, going from aerospace to chocolate printing to consumer products like, you know, the threadboard that's behind you. Um, you know, I really enjoyed this conversation, Zach. Uh, I appreciate your time, man. And, uh, you know, looking forward to chatting with you a little bit more. Um you, I, I saw you post recently too that you're going to Form Next, right? Pretty soon here. Yeah, Form Next Austin, right down the road. Yeah. yeah. So if anybody, anybody listening, uh, you know, see me walking around. Uh, I, I usually have like neon green hair and and that deal, so I should be really <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I love it. I love the glasses too to match with it. Uh, those weren't printed, were they? I have a printed pair that I wear. So I, okay. I started I started off on the neon green hair. And then when as I was posting stuff, I started to kind of get known for it at like trade shows. Yeah. So I just kind of like let it spiral out of control. And I just, <laughs> I pretty much buy everything in neon green now. Makes That's it awesome. really easy to find me. So if you see me at, at Form Next, like, you know, reach out. And I'll, I'll uh, hang cool. out a little bit, but. Yeah, awesome. I didn't I didn't see it that uh, early enough uh, that Form Next is going to be happening there. So I, I definitely won't make it this year, but looking to get there next year um, and some other more additive manufacturing conferences. Um, so yeah, a Amog's a great one. You know, Rapid's always fun. And there's the the Rep Rap festivals too. Yeah, I haven't been to the Rep Rap festival. I'd really I'd love to go. So that's that's on my list probably next year. I'm going to try to hit that one. Yeah, I think that's coming up in October, I think, in, um, is it in Maryland, maybe? Um, you know, I think yeah, I don't remember. Down around there, I think it's in Maryland. So um, we'll definitely check out uh, some other conferences that could be useful for people and, and mention those a little bit earlier on. Um, you know, but yeah, have fun at Form Next. Uh, hopefully I see you at another, you know, 3D printing conference here soon. And uh, yeah, looking forward to chatting with you a little bit more. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. For sure. Well, thank you to everyone for listening to Fabrication Friday this week. Uh, had a lot of fun with Zach. Looking forward to uh, more talks coming on. So have a great weekend. And thank you for very much for listening to the Fabrication Friday podcast. Um, that conversation with Zach was was a really fun time. And I'm really appreciative of, of you know his time to be able to share with us all the really cool things that he has been able to do within 3D printing. Um, I wanted to get into the tech tip of the week. Tech tip of the week um, is relating to our Van Ness prosthesis, actually. So Monique wanted the um, flexible inner for the thigh section here to be printed originally in two parts so that the two parts could kind of nest into one another um, and just kind of overlap slightly on those um, on those edges. 
So I did, you know, share some concerns with her about that. I wanted to print it on the artillery sidewinder. Um, once you start to print with flexible materials a little higher up on um, a printer like the artillery where the bed is actually moving and there's only one Z-axis gantry going up and one crossbar, you do have a bit of Z-wobble. So you have the part actually physically moving. Uh, we'll show a video here of the part moving where um, the nozzle is actually moving material around the print. And because the, ma the material is so flexible and you're so high up, um, a very little amount of force can actually move that part um, on the plate itself and then cause you know, print issues. So this is kind of what the, the poor print looked like. Um, and so I showed that to Monique and said, look, I, I really want to print this a different way. Um, but what's going to happen is because you're going to want to split this in half, and then kind of um, skive the edges to overlap the parts. I'm gonna print two of them um, so that you can have a front half and a back half um, and you can very intimately mate those together. So ended up printing it, like I said, on the Kratos um, with the 0.9 millimeter nozzle um, and the print came out beautifully. So our tech tip of the week this week is watch out for Z wobble if you have a uh, flexible material that is a, a fairly tall print, you might want to consider a different printer to print that on or consider some external structures that would help this part remain stable along those um, very outside edges. Um, could end up being just a very thin section of that same plastic, um, that TPU, that you just create kind of like this um, fanned outward, you know, rectangular um, structure on the edges of the part itself um, in order to try to uh, stabilize those edges a little bit. So thanks for uh, listening in to the Fabrication Friday podcast this week, everyone. We'll see you next week.